ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the fourth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, murder below the nat line. For photos and additional information, please go to AJC.com slash breakdown. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at AJC Breakdown. So what I find most compelling about uh, the Devania Inman case is the fact that evidence was developed at the time of the trial that this Hercules Brown had actually confessed to the murder. And that was not allowed into evidence at the trial for reasons, frankly, I do not understand legally. But they killed her, you know, and there just wasn't no reason for it. Got the cash register and took it outside and uh, couldn't open it and threw it on the ground and left it. Didn't get not one dime, not nothing. For it, it killed two people. Senseless. There's no, uh, uh, no reason for it. It's like, okay, now it all adds up to why and everything that happened. It's like, how could you keep this guy in prison and you notice? It's like you don't want to admit to the fact that you was wrong and, you know, we was right. Hi, I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Breakdown. The mask was so simple and crude that it was kind of scary looking. Someone took a pair of gym pants and cut off one leg at about the knee. That one length of sweatpant leg doesn't sound like much of a mask until you cut two eye holes in it and pull it over your head. The prosecution said the killer of Donna Brown wore that mask outside the Taco Bell that night. Well, Devanya Inman was supposedly the killer, but the mask didn't have his DNA on it. The DNA on the mask belonged to none other than... Hercules Brown. No question? No doubt. Slam dunk. That by itself should be enough evidence to justify a new trial for Inman, right? Well, yes, absolutely if you're on Inman's defense team. But if you're in the DA's office that won Inman's conviction, not even close. I met with the the new district attorney and went through the whole case. Like, here it is, and here's the DNA evidence. And so we had a a conference just to talking about the case. And they're like, no, he was convicted. He's, he's guilty. That's Amy Maxwell, who at the time headed the Georgia Innocence Project. My yeah. argument was, of course, I think it exonerates him, but it at least justifies a new trial. 
And at the very least, it justifies a new trial because the defense tried to bring in an alternate suspect and they were shut down because there was no evidence other than some wild hearsay, you know, from parties that this guy was involved. Well, now there was the evidence this guy was involved and this guy went on to kill someone else in that, two other people in that town. Honestly, I can't believe that the district attorney's office really spent the time looking at this case and really thought, we're proud of this conviction. We're gonna stand behind this conviction. There ought to be some critical thinking in this. If you can't proudly stand next, although maybe they can, maybe they feel like, oh yes, we're proud of this conviction, but I can't see how you can be proud of this conviction. That new district attorney that Maxwell is referring to is Dick Perryman. Despite the fact I've called and left repeated messages for him, even dropped by his office on a number of occasions, Perryman has not called me back. I'm still trying, though. So I went back to the two prosecutors who obtained Inman's conviction and sent him away to prison for life without parole. Both said they don't believe the new DNA result changes the equation. Here's Bob Ellis, the former DA. At the time of the Devonia Inman prosecution, you know, we were 100% convinced that he did it. I mean, I mean, why wouldn't seek the death penalty on somebody I thought was innocent? It's just not, it's too much trouble. You have scores of motions and you go through all this and you have all this uh, judicial scrutiny at every turn. Uh, you know, it's just too much trouble. Why, why do that? I always told my folks that you didn't get extra credit for convicting innocent people. And so, and I still believe that. I mean, I I still believe that. So it wouldn't surprise me that Hercules Brown knew Devonia Inman. If you're trying this case and you're a defense lawyer, you would make hay with that and say, oh, well, you got the wrong guys. It was really Hercules Brown, and especially since Hercules is convicted of something else. So he's kind of a known bad actor, and you could keep that on him, and I could see a defense lawyer doing that. Uh, However, I don't see it as exonerating as for Devonia. Could Hercules Brown be a co-defendant? Absolutely. That would not shock my sensibilities. But did I know that at the time? Absolutely not, or I would have charged him. We would have rounded up the whole group. So based on what we had at the time, We thought we did the right thing. Ellis then threw out one scenario that, like the rest of this case, I found totally baffling. I think Hercules worked at Taco Bell. And Hercules, as a high school child, was pretty well thought of. He worked, he was in the band. So he could have had a a friendship relationship with Donna Brown and not killed her. It could have been an item left in the car. Yeah, you heard that right. He said Hercules and Donna Brown may have had some relationship, and over the course of it, Hercules just happened to leave a homemade mask in her car by accident? Seriously? And not only that, Donna Brown had only been working at the Taco Bell for just two days when she was killed. Here's Tim Edson. He was second chair to DA Bob Ellis at Inman's trial. We, you know, believed or we thought that it might be Hercules Brown, from what talk in the community was. It was just at that time, we couldn't prove who the third person was. We knew that Devonian was involved. We knew that um, 
Marquetta Thomas was involved. As far as Hercules Brown now, you know, the defense believed that Hercules was involved. And they also thought that Hercules might have been the actual shooter. We have always believed that Devonya and Marquetta were involved. I believe that at the beginning. Now, I believe that now. The prosecution knew Marquetta Thomas was involved. So what was she charged with? Oh, right. Nothing. We need to take a brief but bizarre digression. As I told you in episode one, Ellis, the prosecution's first chair, and Edson, the prosecution's second chair, would meet up again in another courtroom. This time, though, the chairs were in different places. In 2003, more than a decade after Inman's trial, federal agents descended upon the Alapaha judicial circuit like a swarm of gnats. They were investigating two judges accused of corruption. FBI agents interviewed seemingly everyone in a position of authority in the circuit. That included both Ellis and Edson. During their interview with Ellis, FBI agents threw in an unexpected question. Have you ever solicited sex from, or had sex with, a person who had pending charges in your circuit? Ellis said no. Well, he had not. He had sex with an informant. There's a difference. They did not ask the right question. Now, what? Should Bob have said, I know you said defendant, and while technically she's indicted, but her her indictment is phony because the sheriff asked me to indict her where her family wouldn't kill her because she's been informing on her husband and his family for cooking meth. That was Richard Hyde, an investigator who later worked on Ellis's case. So Ellis had been having an affair with a woman who was, at the very least, an informant in a drug investigation. Ellis had filed what's called an accusation, that's a formal charge, against the woman to make it look like she really was facing charges, Hyde said. After that, Ellis and the informant began fooling around. I asked Hyde where the two had sex. It was in the courtroom. It was in, uh, at her home. It was outside. It was inside. It was in the car. It was out of the car. I mean, they, they were very familiar with one another. But it wasn't forced. She wasn't a defendant, and it was consensual. Bob Ellis made mistakes, but the mistakes Bob made were between him and his wife and his God. Bob committed no crime. I know the case better than anybody. I know it from the government side, and I know it from Bob's side. Bob was asked if he was having sex with a defendant. He was not. He did not. He had sex with an informant. After Ellis's initial interview with FBI agents, he went back and told them the whole story. Yes, I've been having sex, but with an informant, not a defendant, he said. The distinction did not impress federal prosecutors. Ellis would later call Hyde from the U.S. Marshal's office in Albany, Georgia. Ellis said he'd just been indicted. He faced three counts, depriving a woman's rights under the law, witness tampering, and making false statements. Federal prosecutors would file a court motion disclosing that they'd torn up a section of carpet from the floor of a courtroom. Testing showed that the carpet contained traces of Ellis's semen. I know, like I've said throughout this podcast, you can't make this stuff up. In court filings, Ellis said the woman was the sexual aggressor. Prosecutors contended that, by holding the charges over her head, he was forcing her to have sex with him. Court filings also disclosed there were secretly recorded conversations between the two, 
during which Ellis made sexual advances. Richard Hyde, the investigator, contends there was no evidence that Ellis coerced the woman into having sex. Not that I'm defending the federal government, but in their minds, they had a sure enough bona fide crooked district attorney who, had Bob been doing that, should have gone to prison. Probably should have gone for a long, long time. Had Bob been doing that, he should still be in prison, in my view, but he wasn't, he did not do that. He had sex with an informant and it was consensual sex. In August 2004, shortly before he was to stand trial, Ellis did what most defendants do. He pleaded guilty. Prosecutors dropped the civil rights and witness tampering charges. Ellis pleaded guilty to making a false statement. Three months later, Ellis appeared for sentencing. Inside the courtroom were district attorneys from across the state. They wanted to show support for their fallen colleague. Also appearing as a government witness, Tim Edson, Ellis's former chief assistant DA. Federal prosecutors called upon Edson so they could argue for enhanced prison time for Ellis. Here's Richard Hyde, who was in the courtroom that day. He ended up testifying against Bob at a sentencing hearing. To get Bob more time, Edson testified that the mere fact that Bob was indicted disrupted the judiciary in that circuit, and therefore he should serve more time because of that. For the false statement charge, Ellis faced a maximum of six months behind bars. But Judge Yu Lawson found that Ellis's indictment had disrupted the Alapaha Judicial Circuit's criminal calendar and compromised the integrity of the district attorney's office. He sentenced Ellis to 18 months in federal prison. Ellis was sent to the lockup at Fort Dix, New Jersey. But eight months later, the Federal Appeals Court in Atlanta ruled that Judge Lawson had overstepped his authority by jacking up Ellis's sentence. Ellis was then returned to Georgia, where he stood once again before Judge Lawson, who sentenced him to time served. But Lawson reminded Ellis why he was there. He'd engaged in a series of sexual acts with a woman who was being prosecuted by his office. And then he started it on. He said, but you have embarrassed yourself, your community, your profession. Gave him a pretty good talking to, which was not undeserved. That was Converse Bright, a lawyer who represented Ellis. The federal courts in Georgia don't release the audio from sentencing hearings. So I'll read aloud what Judge Lawson told Ellis. But when I read it, it won't have the smoke rising from it. The charges against Mr. Ellis, if true, are egregious, shocking, reprehensible, and indefensible. That the sexual misconduct may have been consensual, as has been suggested by Mr. Ellis, affords him no relief and is no excuse. You are not being punished, in my opinion, as you deserve. You are a disgrace to the legal profession and to law enforcement, as well as to the community of citizens who mistakenly reposed great confidence in you. And this opprobrium, which you will carry for the rest of your life, is probably your greatest punishment. Ellis is now a customer service representative answering phone calls for a boat company in Nashville, Georgia. His office is not far from where he held forth as the district attorney. I'll say this about Ellis. He made some mistakes, but he seems to have learned from them. I can't imagine how a stint in federal prison wouldn't change you. I found him to be friendly, thoughtful, and forthright. And he's now a Methodist minister, something he seems quite proud of. 
I recently asked Ellis whether he wanted to comment on what caused him to leave office and spend time in federal prison. I'm hesitant to comment about that publicly because I have no idea how the Justice Department would react to that. Like Devanya Inman, the man Ellis put in prison for life, Ellis believes he too was wrongly charged. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. In season one of Breakdown, the fortunes of Justin Chapman changed for two reasons. As he served a life sentence in a Georgia prison, Chapman had a staunch and persuasive defender. That was attorney Jan Hankins, who went from one law firm to another asking that someone take up Chapman's case. And a major law firm took the case, threw its resources behind it, and ran with it. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that. No spoilers for season one if you haven't listened to it yet. Now back to season four. Devanya Inman had a lawyer who believed in his innocence, and she got a big firm to take up his case, too. That firm was Sutherland, Asbill, and Brennan, now called Eversheds Sutherland. Firm partner Knox Dobbins and counsel Jason Stone signed on pro bono. Knox and Jason did banking law. They did not do criminal law. They didn't do litigation. They didn't have any experience with it. But their perspective was so fresh. That's Amy Maxwell from the Georgia Innocence Project. The more they looked at the case, the more they believed that there had been an injustice. So it was really inspiring to me to watch these banking lawyers get outraged. They did an unbelievable amount of research and and thinking outside of how criminal defense lawyers think. Having somebody who is a banking lawyer who looks at tiny little um, details and contracts and, and administrative law and that sort of thing, when they look at this from their perspective, they see things that I probably missed. And they look at it in a different way. The new team would file what's known as an extraordinary motion for a new trial. What's that? Yes, it's time for a... Lesson lesson in in the law. law. What makes the motion extraordinary is that the defendant is claiming to have found new evidence. The evidence must meet several conditions, including, and most important, it is, quote, so material it could produce a different verdict, unquote. Other conditions are more prosaic, including the evidence that's become known since the trial ended. The defense didn't just miss it the first time around because the defense lawyer was a slacker who should have found it but didn't. And the new evidence does something other than just prove that some witness lied at trial. In other words, it has to be a game changer. The new team asked the court in 2010 to allow new DNA testing on the mask. Then they spent months interviewing witnesses. The DNA test came back in May 2011, less than two months after it was authorized. The test confirmed that Hercules Brown's DNA was present on the mask, not Devanya Inman's. By the way, there's a photo of the mask on our website, ajcbreakdown.com. Judge Buster McConnell, who presided over Inman's trial in 2001, finally heard the extraordinary motion for a new trial on January 21st, 2014. That's nearly four years after the motion was filed. If you'll recall, at the time of Inman's trial, Judge McConnell had had five heart attacks. 
Before the hearing began, the judge told the attorneys that he'd had heart attack number six and had died on the operating table. And here's something else to bear in mind. This hearing contained an absolute bombshell. We've talked about how the case against Inman kept crumbling, even at trial, how key witnesses took the stand and said they had fabricated their statements to police. And now we have the DNA evidence. But there's more. We'll take it from the top, but we'll get there. At the hearing, Amy Maxwell opened with her explosive new evidence. The defense tried to get in evidence that Hercules Brown had confessed that he killed Donna Brown to several different people. But Your Honor ruled that um, these witnesses were unreliable, that the evidence was not reliable enough. As I said before, Your Honor, you had ruled those as not having the addition of reliability that you felt comfortable with for the defense to put up the alternate suspect theory. Throughout the trial, did you hear what the judge asked? Is that a nice, euphemistic way of saying I screwed up? Maxwell knew better than to tell the judge that he'd screwed up. Instead, she said simply and wisely that the new DNA evidence changed everything. The only thing in this case that tells you who was actually there is the DNA. And as, as Agent Steinberg told Hercules Brown, when he was interviewing him about where the mask was, you know, how the mask got in the car with his DNA, DNA tells you the truth. It doesn't lie. The DNA on that mask in the front, underneath the front passenger seat, where if you were, if you had been wearing that mask while you committed the crime, you jumped in that car, you were driving down the road, you'd have ripped it off and thrown it right there. It's exactly where the driver would have thrown a mask. Our client's DNA is nowhere. And interestingly enough, they didn't, get a DNA, they didn't get DNA from anybody else that ever touched that mask. They got Hercules Brown's DNA inside the mask. Judge McConnell discloses he had wondered about Hercules Brown's involvement at the time of the trial. I had the question from earlier on in the case, while the case was being tried, as to whether or not Hercules Brown was acting independently or with someone else, or was he part of this criminal endeavor involving all these folks and nobody ever really brought out whether or not there was a real relationship between Hercules Brown and Mr. Edmund, whether they knew each other. You'll recall that at trial, the defense tried not once, but twice to bring in testimony that Hercules Brown had confessed to killing Donna Brown at the Taco Bell. You'll also recall that Judge McConnell refused not once, but twice to let the evidence in. Thirteen years later, though, he was saying he'd had his suspicions. By now, Jess Hornsby was the chief assistant DA. That was Tim Edson's job during the trial. It fell to Hornsby to explain the state's position on the new DNA evidence. The evidence was never that Mr. Inman acted alone. The evidence at trial was that there were at least three other people involved in this. Evidence DNA linking someone other than the defendant to a piece of evidence found away from the crime scene does nothing to exonerate Mr. Inman. All that does is possibly implicate another person that may have been involved as a co-conspirator or party to the crime. The mass simply indicates Hercules Brown may have been involved in this thing. It does nothing to exonerate Mr. Inman. And it would not serve as corroboration to make that testimony now admissible. Remember our lesson in the law? Hornsby knew that lesson well. 
I think the issue is simply is the DNA on that mask so material that it would change the verdict, that it would be a different uh, result if that weren't evidence. And I absolutely do th not think that's the case. What he didn't say is that Inman was convicted on the basis of zero physical evidence. And now here, finally, was a piece of physical evidence, but the state didn't think it was relevant. So how certain was the DNA match to Hercules Brown? Amy Maxwell put up GBI crime lab technician James Sebastian and asks him that question. Uh, within the African-American population, we would expect to see the profile obtained from the evidence one time in 18 quadrillion individuals. I think that's not how, how, how many zeros is that guy? We're going to really test you. <laughs> 16 zeros. Okay. Right. Thank you. Next up, Kwame Spaulding. You'll recall that Spaulding was perhaps the state's most important witness at trial. He was Inman's cellmate. He testified that Inman confessed to him that he'd killed Donna Brown in the parking lot of the Taco Bell. Prosecutor Hornsby objects to Spaulding's testimony. He calls it a fishing expedition. Maxwell explains that the defense team called Spaulding because they had tried to interview him, but he'd refused to talk to them. They also tried to talk to Virginia Tatum, the newspaper delivery woman who said she saw Inman driving Donna Brown's car away from the crime scene. Tatum had slammed the door in their faces, Maxwell said. I would just like to see if there's any changes they'd like to make or if they would like to recant their statements, their lies. McConnell relents, at least partly, and allows Spaulding to enter the courtroom. After Spaulding takes the witness stand, McConnell tells him, Okay, I'm not gonna swear again at this point in time. This is gonna, I'll ask you one question and uh, then she may ask you a question. Anything you wanna add to your testimony you've already given in this case or take away? What Spaulding has to say is simply stunning. Okay, I was just basically saying since you the judge though, you know, I was just saying in front of the court that basically everything was coerced. I mean, he, he was telling me he'll let me go home and just telling me stuff to say about it. We don't want to get that there if you want to. Oh, all right, yeah. I talk, to, to, talk to them. Yeah, I don't, I don't know nothing about that dude. You know, we was just, other than he was my cellmate. But I, I talked to whoever, I ain't got no problem with him. Yes, you heard it right. Here we go. Yet another recantation of critical testimony used to convict Devanya Inman. McConnell tells Spaulding, in light of this recantation, you might need to get a lawyer. No, I don't, I don't need a lawyer. I mean, like I said, everything I said was basically coerced by whoever that guy was, the detective telling me. This is pretty amazing stuff. There's no other way to look at it. Next, Maxwell calls Virginia Tatum to the stand. Tatum has nothing to add to her testimony from 2001. Again, Prosecutor Hornsby objects to this line of questioning. Judge, I think... I would ask the court to advise her that she does not have to speak to anybody if she does not want to. That is her That's decision. That's about as plain as I can make it. Um, you don't have to speak to anybody. Okay. You can. I choose not to then. Okay. 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 With that, Tatum stepped down from the witness stand and left the courtroom. Tatum and I spoke in the early summer of 2017. Standing on her front porch with Nats ever on the attack, I asked Tatum about the mask. I heard about the mask later. Because um, that mask was found in that car with Hercules Brown's DNA. Wow. <clears throat> that was brought up when I got dragged to court the last time. Um, I didn't know anything about it. And to be honest with you, I'm going to tell you the same thing I said almost nearly 20-something years ago. Maxwell had three more witnesses to call, 
Next up was Jamie Steinberg. He's the GBI agent who headed the investigation into Donna Brown's murder at Taco Bell. Through Steinberg, Maxwell introduces the videotape interview of Hercules Brown that we talked about in episode four. Although Prosecutor Hornsby tells Judge McConnell he doesn't think that's necessary. Judge, I was going to suggest, we've all seen it. Uh, Ms. Maxwell just said Agent Steinberg can testify. Hercules Brown does not give any any information regarding the mask. He completely denies everything. I don't know that playing a 20-minute video is going to accomplish anything more than Agent Steinberg just testifying that he makes no statements regarding the mask. This is going to be your call. But Maxwell tells McConnell he absolutely needs to see it. Yeah, Your Honor, I think it's pretty powerful. I think it, it shows that it's not just he doesn't know anything about the mask. Agent Steinberg backs him into a corner unbelievably professionally, just giving him every possible, every conceivable way his DNA could get on there. And he's like, no, I don't understand, didn't do this, I, didn't, I don't know, I only know... Devanya Inman, that he spoke to him and that he um, uh, had no relationship. He says several times, I had no relationship with him. It's a little more powerful than just he denies anything to do with the mask. McConnell admits it into evidence. Maxwell then has a final line of questioning for Steinberg. Since that time, have you done any follow-up investigation on Hercules' involvement in this, the Taco Bell murders? That's been... No, there's been no additional investigative acts after that. Did you compare the latent fingerprints, which did not match my client, to Mr. Brown from the crime scene, the latent prints from the crime scene? I just answered that question. Okay. Did you hear that? Seriously? They didn't do something that basic and seemingly so obvious? I'm not a policeman, but that is just astonishing to me. Maxwell follows up with one more question. Did you compare any of the physical evidence other than the DNA to Mr. Brown? No additional investigative acts have been conducted since that. Okay, that's all the questions I have, Your Honor. After Steinberg steps down, Maxwell then calls the man of the hour to the stand, Hercules Brown. But before Hercules takes the stand, local lawyer Daniel Cannell addresses the court. He says he's been appointed to represent Hercules for the purposes of this hearing. He also says this. I have advised my client of his Fifth Amendment rights. He just indicated to me that he wished to invoke those rights and did not wish to answer any questions. Hercules, who's serving a life without parole sentence for the Bennett's grocery murders, enters the courtroom. Morning, Mr. Brown. Long time no see. Mr. Brown, will you state your name for the record, please? Hey, we heard these, bro. Uh, just a few minutes ago, I went through your constitutional rights, including your Fifth Amendment right, which includes your right against self-incrimination. Is that right? Yes. Is it your wish now to invoke those rights? It is. Okay. Do you wish to answer any questions that the court might have of you concerning the appeal of Devon Hinman and the Taco Bell murders? No, I don't. Okay. I think that's sufficient, Judge. Hercules is soon excused from the courtroom. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Maxwell's last witness is Melinda Riles, one of the two attorneys who represented Inman at trial. Maxwell gets Riles to recall how the defense tried but failed to get in testimony from three witnesses. Two said Hercules had confessed to them he'd killed Donna Brown. Another witness said Hercules had asked her to help him pull off a robbery at the Taco Bell. Okay, and you know that now we are here today because we've had the mask that was found in the victim's car tested for DNA, and it came back to Hercules Brown. Correct. Okay. Um, If that evidence had been available at the time of trial, how would that have changed your trial strategy? What she did say was that it would have been central to her case. The defense was built around the notion that Inman didn't commit the murder. Here was evidence that might have supported that view. In closing arguments, Knox Dobbins, the volunteer lawyer, tells Judge McConnell that he would have allowed the alternate suspect testimony at trial had the DNA test been available back then. And McConnell seems to agree. The evidence would have been from a Thomas Edwards who testified that Hercules Brown confessed uh, Your Honor took proffered sworn testimony from Thomas Edwards. That has to, that strikes me as extremely significant given the on-the-record, off-the-record uh, statement of Kwame Spaulding today, the prosecution's witness, that he made it all up. The thing about it is, it corroborates what these other people might have testified to do Otherwise, might not have been allowed to testify. Yes, sir. McConnell finally says, essentially, this creates problems for me. Yes, Your Honor, and that's a very good summary, and I can sit down. Maxwell then tells Judge McConnell that because Hercules worked at Taco Bell, he was familiar with the closing procedures. There was also a good reason why he had the mask, she said. The mask was not, it was, was designed to be used for a crime. And since the manager knew Hercules Brown, it makes all the sense in the world that he would be wearing the mask during that crime. The only piece of physical evidence, the only bit of information that is anywhere in this case that says who was involved in that crime is Hercules Brown. And when asked about that mask, he says he has no idea how his DNA got in there. He says that several times. He says, and I quote, I don't have a relationship with Devanya. He doesn't implicate anyone. He doesn't give any, any credible explanation of how this makeshift mask ends up with his DNA and ends up in the victim's car. And it makes no sense at all that somehow or another there's an intervening person, Devonya Inman, who's throwing that mask in the, the car. It's hard to imagine that there's a reasonable juror who would not have thought, hmm, that alternate suspect evidence makes sense. And all the defense had to have was reasonable doubt. And that mask with Mr. Brown's DNA in it is reasonable doubt. That's the definition of reasonable doubt. Prosecutor Hornsby then gets up to argue, but Judge McConnell interjects by saying this. The first witness he speaks of appears to be Kwame Spaulding. One of the witnesses the state had was very, very credible. Yeah. Um, the other one, I don't know how... The one that seen through the car, uh, I don't see how that could be done. Yes, you heard it right. Judge McConnell appears to be saying he couldn't understand how Virginia Tatum saw what she said she saw. You know what that means? Three of the four key witnesses at trial recanted, and the judge now says he doesn't believe the fourth key witness. 
So what's left, you ask? Well, there's this mask with Hercules Brown's DNA on it. Undaunted, Hornsby pressed on. They're acting as if this mask is the sole decider of the case. That's not the issue, Judge. No witnesses testified that they saw anybody wearing a mask. You know, it's not a situation where there was a, somebody that saw somebody at the scene and said, yep, I saw somebody on the scene wearing a mask. That didn't happen. At the trial, of course, it was the prosecution that talked about the killer wearing a mask, how the killer was especially cold-blooded because he was wearing a mask, how the victim couldn't have identified him because of that mask, how he shot her anyway. The prosecution, which is now saying, hey, nobody said they saw someone wearing a mask. Virginia Tatum, who has no connection, doesn't know these folks from Adams House Cat, she testified, I saw the car drive by, I got a look at the person, that's who I saw, Devonia Emmett, picked him out of a photo lineup. She said she saw some other folks behind it. So yes, evidence was presented there were other folks who may or may not have been involved in the planning for or after the fact. A piece of evidence found away from the scene with someone's DNA, all that means is their DNA. There's still no evidence that Hercules Brown was at the scene or at the location where the car was found. No witnesses put him there. No evidence came out that he was involved. This is just a a piece of evidence that's peripherally uh, it's important, but not as to Devonia Inman. It's just important as to whether Hercules Brown were to get charged as a co-defendant. But it does nothing to exonerate the defendant. Maxwell gets the last word. At trial, the mask was introduced as evidence, and it basically was kind of showing premeditation that somebody thought about this. Uh, as far as the evidence, the mask is Hercules Brown. Hercules Brown is per- perfectly capable of murder. Hercules Brown was probably the one who did it. But if Your Honor is thinking, well, maybe Mr. Emmett had something to do with it, well, then that's a different trial. And let's, let's have that trial and see if he had something to do with it. As for Hornsby's argument that the mask was found on the periphery of the crime? That is, it's not on the periphery. It is a mask used by somebody committing a crime in the victim's car. It's not found outside the crime scene. It's found in the victim's car that was stolen from the crime scene. McConnell now has the case. So it's just a matter of time before he decides. Throughout the extraordinary hearing, the judge appears to be leaning toward Inman's argument. Will Inman get a new trial or not? It takes McConnell 10 months to render a decision. Next, on Breakdown. The most important person in this case was Donna Brown, who died outside the Taco Bell in 1998. Who was she? We'll find out. He was seven years old when his mother was taken from him. And all she lived for in that seven years, and I remember that as well, was Matthew... Once she had Matthew, that's, that was it. That, her life was complete. She didn't need nothing else in her life. Breakdown was reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Sound designed by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. Original Breakdown theme music composed and performed by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Additional music composed and performed by Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2. Special thanks to Kevin Riley. Bert Roten, Monica Richardson, Bo Emerson, Melanie Stolte, and all the great folks at the AJC, Buddy Hall, Chris Nicholson, Jesse Sino, Michael Williford, Maida Muhich, and Lynn Taylor.
ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.